Good afternoon, Foundation Church. Um, yeah, Owen's right. I've got three kids. He paused there because he didn't know the name of my kids, so I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> fill in the details. Um, I've got a boy called Seth, daughter Isla, and another little boy, nine months old, called Knox. And um, yeah, we, my wife's a doctor. I live in Kennington, which is central London. We um, we planted Grace London about five and a half years ago. Uh, on the South Bank in the Waterloo area of central London, and it's been a real joy. It's been really quite an adventure, and you guys are kind of discovering a little bit of what that's like now, I guess. You're, how long in are you with the church plant? So, I mean, since official launch, only two months. Yeah, two months, okay. So you guys are a newborn baby as church plants go. And um, I want to commend you for being part of this uh, adventure it's extraordinary what God can do in and through people who are yielded to him, who want to serve him. And we found just incredible grace of God in it. It's been a really amazing experience in many ways, but also a lot of trying circumstances, heartache. And it was weird. I was with our church this morning. I didn't preach this morning. My colleague did, but I was at Grace this morning. And um, real somber atmosphere in many ways. Probably about 40, 45% of the church were away today. These are strange days, aren't they? And... Um, we, I think the response of Christians, the response of the church, is going to be really critical. And I want to um, encourage you guys to be full of prayer and to continue to, to seek God about this. I want to speak to you from Mark chapter 4. If you have a Bible, open it. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And I, um, it was great. Our brother prayed about Jesus stilling the storm. I told Owen a few days ago, this is the passage I want to preach on. So... Um, I love it when God does that. So let me read to you from the end of Mark chapter 4. We're going to pick up verse 35 and read the last verses of this chapter. It says this, that on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. I wanted to speak from this passage. Actually, when I chose it, I did not have the coronavirus situation in mind, but it felt so pertinent as I was um, preparing. Um, I was with my brother down in Salisbury. He's an ICU and anesthetics consultant in the hospital there. And so they'd just been hit with Novichok last year or whenever it was. And now this, they're expecting, anticipating this, the arrival of this great new thing that's going to hit us all and impact our lives in all kinds of ways. And I felt very sober just being around him, the preparations they're making. And I do think that as Christians, we ought to be sobered in a sense and prepared and prayerful. But let's get into this passage. I'm sure God's going to speak to us through it. Jesus crosses the lake after a very long day. If you look back through the chapter, he's been teaching. He's been (laughs) ministering to people. And a day of this kind of ministry is, is exhausting. 
But what we know from Mark's gospel is that there's this kind of breathless pace. Jesus is constantly on the move. Even when he's tied out from the stuff he's doing, he's constantly on the move. He doesn't pause or stop. There's this kind of urgency within him. And it seems that that is still continuing here. It tells us here that just he got in the boat just as he was in verse 36. So it's like there's no pause, there's no rest, he's not taking any time out. He is on the move. And I just mention that because you feel something of the sense of urgency in the Lord Jesus Christ to be about his mission. And I, that's not my theme for today, but I just want to notice that as a side point. Christians need to have a godly hustle when it comes to the mission that we're about. There is an urgency. The work you, are, you guys are involved in here with this church is absolutely critical and important. There is an urgency that we're about God's work. Now, as they are crossing this sea... The Sea of Galilee is, is a very large lake, basically, but it's surrounded by hills, and storms can arise very quickly because of differences in air pressure and temperature, and when they come, a squall is a, a violent and intense thing on the Sea of Galilee, and immediately they find themselves in this absolutely terrifying situation. I've only been on one sailing trip in my life, which was across the Solent over to France with about 12 guys from our church. And a captain who knew what he was doing. None of us knew what we were doing. He did. And it got choppy on the way over. I mean, the, the waves were getting high. But not, it wasn't nowhere near a storm level. But every single one of us felt utterly sick. And if you've ever been seasick, you want to die. It is honestly, it's one of the worst sensations you've ever felt in your body. And I was feeling, I was, it was disgusting. There was... There was vomit spraying everywhere. The boat was reeling and rocking. And that was nothing in comparison with what Christ and his disciples were going through on this day. It, was, it would have been an insanely terrifying experience for these seasoned fishermen to be afraid for their lives. I think we can conclude that it was a violent storm. Now, when we're looking at a, par- a story like this, what are we to, how are we to read it? How are we to understand what's going on here in this miracle? When you read the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that you begin to notice is that each of the miracle stories has a kind of figurative meaning. It's not just, you know, you don't just go, oh, Jesus heals, and then that's your learning point, and you come away from the story. You understand that the nature of each of the miracles is is heavy and pregnant with meaning. And I think, for example, when Jesus heals the lepers in Mark's Gospel, it's infused with the sensation, that, that the sense or the meaning that Christ has come to bring cleansing to us and to our to our defilement. In the Old Testament, leprosy was something which defiled you and took you out of God's people. So Christ came to deal with our defilement. Or when Jesus heals a blind man, the scriptures are, lead us to understand that there is such a thing as spiritual blindness. So Christ heals the physical blindness to demonstrate to us that he also wants to come and heal us of our spiritual blindness. Now when you come to a story like this one, we, none, it's very unlikely that any of you are ever going to find yourself in this literal circumstance where you are fearing for your life on a lake or in the sea. So how do you read it? And I think we're, we're right to understand that this is it's meant to be understood figuratively, that there are, there are deeper meanings than merely the fact that he, he, he calmed the storm. And what I want to do is, is, is show you a few angles from which we can understand this story that speak to us in our present circumstance. And some of the the difficulties that we're facing personally, I recognize that at any given moment, I'm a pastor of a church, I know that at any given moment, there are people in my church who are going through very difficult times. 
And it happens to be the case that now we as a nation are being swept up in something which is capturing all of our attention at the same time. Now, what, how do we as Christians... Now, I want to say to you right at the start, Christians must respond differently. If we do not respond differently to the sufferings that we face personally or to the stuff that's happening around us in the world, then what kind of faith do we have? And therefore, I want, I want to draw out from the passage and from what God's doing here the, the meaning that will help us come away with a more robust faith, that prepares us for whatever comes. It will not surprise me if, if death touches our congregations and the churches that we are part of in, in the advanced movement of churches. It won't surprise me if that happens. I'm just waiting for the first pastor to say that we had to conduct a funeral. How do we prepare ourselves in these situations? I want to show you a few things. Here's the first. Storms reveal what the calm cannot reveal. The calm seasons in life have their own trials and you think about calm in terms of prosperity and in terms of things going well for you in terms of you experience the flourishing aspects of your life and there has its own dangers when things are going well for you in life the dangers are lethargy and apathy and prayerlessness and this is why Jesus was keen to teach us about the dangers of wealth as an example of that when you have everything you need in life that has its own danger and I want to acknowledge that But when a storm comes, and you think about the figurative aspect of what that means in your life, when suffering comes, when unexpected trials come in your life, they show us that they're there to reveal what's latent or what's hidden in our lives. I think they're even sent by God to reveal aspects of the reality of our spiritual lives. And I think about things like acute suffering, crisis moments in life, or setbacks and danger, opposition. And in that sense, a storm actually has value. Why on earth would I think that? Well, one thing a storm does is it, it, it strips away self-delusion. Delusion is, any of us can fall into a state of delusion at any point. Middle-aged men are typically deluded creatures. And we're particularly deluded, I'm approaching middle age, we're particularly deluded about our physical prowess. We imagine ourselves to be 20, 25 years younger. When I, was a, when I was a young kid, I was fast. I could run the 100, the 200 meters and beat most people who I raced against. And I, you know, becoming a dad, one of the things I was anticipating as my son was moving up through primary school was the sports day when they had the dad's race. Last summer, I took part in the dad's race. And uh, you know, I was, I was deluded until I stepped up to the line. I looked to my left and to my right, and I realized that some of these guys were 15 years younger than me. I don't think they were the dads, but some, there was something fishy going on. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll just give this my go. i give this a go. And w- the whistle went, and I knew I was in trouble within about three or four steps. When I, when it, 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 was, it surprised me just how long it was taking to build up anything like speed. And then I also realized my shorts were too tight. So it's one of the problems of wearing you know, skinny jeans, shorts version. And I eventually got up to speed, by which point the race was already over. And then I had to have, the, the other problem was stopping once I crossed the finishing line without crashing into the bank of children that would be on the line. And I was, my delusion was totally stripped away in a moment. I thought I was still lithe and young and fit, and it turns out I'm just getting old. And uh, it, it, storms reveal, they, they, they strip away the delusions that we have about ourselves spiritually. 
When stuff hits us that we don't expect, the things that you think are true of you spiritually, the strength you think you have, is revealed for what it is. And storms begin, therefore, to, to get in and expose the fault lines in our spiritual lives. They kind of reveal where the weaknesses are. And Christ himself taught into this. This is not, I'm not just making this stuff up. At the end of Matthew, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember how Jesus said that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock? The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus tells us quite explicitly, and I think it ties in beautifully with the passage that we're looking at, that God in his sovereignty will allow you from time to time to face storms you didn't expect in order to expose the nature of your spirituality, the nature of your foundations. I think also of this passage in 1 Peter. We preached through 1 Peter last autumn, last term. And Peter is speaking to suffering Christians. And he says to them, that you rejoice in this, that now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You're facing suffering. He's acknowledging that. He says, why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's saying that one of the reasons why God allows you to go through a trial, why he allows you to go through suffering, is because it reveals what you're really made of. There's a proverb that says that the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. In other words, God has a way of turning up heat in your life to expose what's really there. And often that's a very disappointing experience because we discover the true nature of our spiritual lives, don't we, in those moments. Jesus says, the storm beat against the house and great was the fall of it. And so what you begin to see is that you may not have the kind of faith you thought you had. You thought you were robust. You thought you were strong. You thought you had, you knew what God was like. You knew, you know Christ. You're assured of your eternal destiny. And then something hits you and maybe doubt comes out or begrudging sort of resentment against God. Or you suddenly realize your prayer life isn't up to scratch. You know, someone in your family is suffering with a sickness and you suddenly realize you don't have a prayer life to fall back on. You didn't know you were an anxious person until this thing is just, just relentlessly challenging and pressing you. And then you realize, I'm, I'm not sleeping, I'm struggling, I'm anxious all of the time. And you didn't know this about yourself until the storm came. And at which point, the true nature of your faith is exposed to you. I think we see this clearly going on in this story. Because you see two very opposite reactions to the storm. You see Jesus, and Christ shows us, in a sense, the model response to suffering or to danger. Because what's he doing? He's asleep in the bottom of the boat, and 
It reminded me of the psalm, in Psalm 3, David's praying, he's talking about the danger that's going on around him. And he says, Lord, you're a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And he says, I lay down and slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Jesus shows us what faith looks like because he, he's just asleep. He just trusts the Father, doesn't he? And that's a very childlike posture. It says, God, it could be the case that the worst imaginable thing is happening around me right now, but I can rest because I know you. I know that you're in control. Very often, isn't it our sleep that goes first when we're anxious and afraid? And then the disciples are a very contrasting reaction. I don't think the disciples really knew what they were made of until this moment. They thought, for example, that they knew Jesus. But what becomes obvious from the story is they don't really know Jesus at all. They don't know who he is. They don't know his power. They don't know his might. They don't know his authority. And the obvious, you know, the the thing that reveals it is the storm. And what comes out of them is just fear and panic. And the panic betrays the true nature of their spiritual faith of what's going on under the surface, doesn't it? So with you. You might be in a crisis. And we're all facing one now, collectively. Let's acknowledge that. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith can be revealed. Storms reveal what calm cannot Let me show you a second truth that comes through in this story. Jesus shows us that fear and faith are two sides of the same coin. In other words, that they are related or diametrically opposed. Fear and faith are other ends of the seesaw, the swing, right? How will you discover that your faith is insufficient and weak? And the answer is the, the great diagnostic of our problems with faith is, of course, when fear begins to emerge in our hearts. Fear is a statement that God is not in control. Fear is a statement that God doesn't care. Fear is a statement that God will not help. And Jesus picks up on this very explicitly when he turns to his disciples after they rudely wake him up. And he says to them in verse 40, Why are you so afraid Have you still no faith? I want to ask you, how how will fear manifest in your life? The answer is sometimes in very acute ways and sometimes in deeply chronic ways. Acute ways are things like panic, anxiety, hyperactivity, where you try and control the situation and try and overwork to try and sort your circumstances out. We're seeing this, aren't we, by the way? People stocking up with more toilet roll than they could possibly need. Outbursts of anger. That's the cute ways that fear expresses itself. The chronic ways are low-level, unstopping stress. Sleeplessness. When your health suffers because you know, people get ulcers or they, they feel chronically exhausted or fatigued. Why? Because we're not at peace. We're not at rest. It's fear. Fear has this corroding effect on your body and your physical health. And I want us to recognize this as a problem. It's vital that we recognize it because I think much of the time the Bible shows us that fear is rooted 
or is a form or an expression of sin, because of expression of unbelief. Now think about these two things for a moment. Think about faith as a godly response to the trials of life, and then contrast it with fear. Why is faith superior? Hebrews tells us that God loves it, doesn't he? When it says that without faith it's impossible to please him. But why is it that faith so pleases God? I think the answer is because faith, faith has the, the, the potential or the ability to glorify God, make him look good. Think about it like this. Let's say you're, you're sat at work with your team and the boss has a particular naughty problem you want someone to solve and you, you put your hand up and say, I'm going to deal with this. If in that moment your boss turns to you and says, uh, well, I'm not so sure, maybe we'll give it to this person instead. That not only humiliates you, but it also it, it has the effect, his lack of faith in you is not glorifying to you, is it? Or imagine if, you know, my wife isn't here today, a couple of the kids aren't feeling too well, it's not coronavirus, she's a doctor, we're, we're pretty confident about that, but she's not here, she's at home with the kids. If my wife was here and she said to you guys, said to someone here, look, come home for dinner with us, come and try my cooking, and I stand there and go, oh, hang on a second, you know. are you sure, are you sure you want to, that's, my, my lack of faith in her does not glorify her in that moment, does it? And the same way, this is how the dynamic of faith works. A Christian, just think, picture this. A Christian who can face trials in life with unbelievable, unwavering confidence and faith. Think of Jesus in the boat. Is somebody who by their, by their emotional life, by their conduct, by, by their joy, preaches to the world that God is good. So faith glorifies God. What therefore does fear communicate? It's opposite, right? Fear diminishes God in his glory. Fear tells the world that our God is not loving, that he is not in control, and that we do not have confidence beyond death. What's the worst thing that can happen to us? That we die. But it's not the worst thing. It's absolutely not the worst thing. In Numbers 14, you know the story of how the spies went to search out the land in Numbers 13, and they came back with a report, and they said, look, we can't possibly conquer the land. It's full of giants. We're going to die. We'll perish. And they lead the people astray, and you, God speaks to this in a very clear way. He says in Numbers 14:11 to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? In other words, God puts his finger on their fear and says, this is a problem because it shows they do not believe in me despite all I've done. And you ask yourself the question, what has God done for us? He's given us his son. There is no question about his love for us his generosity towards us, or his passion to take care of us as his children. Fear communicates the opposite of that, though. So the bottom line here, what I'm trying to say to you is this. That God wants his people to exude, to live by faith, and that in, in many senses, it's probably the most important dynamic of the Christian life. And this storm just, just splits open 
or exposes the problem here of fear in their lives, doesn't it? And we contrast that with the Lord Jesus Christ and how he is absolutely calm. He is totally poised in the midst of the storm. Now, I want to bring out one final point from this story. What kind of faith does Christ want us to grow in? What's the nature of God-glorifying faith that ought to characterize you, your spiritual life, at this season and into the future? And I think the answer is this. It is specifically faith in Christ himself that preserves us through storms. And I, I tell you why. People have other ways of coping. I've seen people who are not Christians coping with difficult trying circumstances. People have various things they run to as their resources in order to cope. And you can think of some of the things that maybe you're you're familiar with yourself. Some people cope through just pure denial or escapism. Just bury your head in the sand and pretend nothing's going wrong. Or just spend endless hours on Netflix or on the internet just ignoring your problems. Some people um, face the challenges of life with what you can call stoicism, that kind of stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on mentality that we're just bred in Britain to, to um, exhibit. That, you know, nothing, we're unflappable. Some people cope with bravado through just kind of like, you know, you think about Trump's reaction to the coronavirus and like, yeah, it's no problem, America's great. You know, that, that kind of bravado mentality that just says we're going to be fine. Some people cope with difficult times by just, it's just another form of denial, isn't it? Some people cope by trying to control the situation, hyperactively, just getting on with trying to manage every detail of what's, what's going on. But, but the Christian has a different response, and I'll tell you why. It's because we have Christ, and Christ gives, is uniquely powerful and capable of resourcing us through the challenges of what we face because of the uniqueness of who he is, because he's shown to us in both his divinity and his humanity. And I want you to see this in this passage. Mark is really careful to draw out these two themes of who Christ is. He shows us, first of all, the humanity of Christ. How he's there in his vulnerability asleep in the bottom of the boat. Why is he asleep? For no other reason than his dog tired. And I take immense encouragement from that because it reminds me of the scriptures which teach us about the fact that Christ had to become like us. He had to enter into the fullness of our humanity, the weakness of frail flesh, in order to fully identify with the circumstances that we face in life. The book of Hebrews is really clear on this. It says in Hebrews 2 that it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, he says, the only way that the Father could prepare the Son to be a sufficient Savior for us was by exposing him to the kinds of sufferings and trials that his sheep face, that we face. So Jesus experienced temptation. He experienced grief. He experienced the loss. It seems the loss of his father, maybe one of the earliest griefs that he faced. We know of him weeping at Lazarus' death. He had to be made a perfect savior through suffering so that he could fully enter into the experiences of the pains that we face in life. 
so that he could sympathize with us. So that when you're facing something and you suddenly feel terrified, or when there's a temptation that feels like it's going to overwhelm you, you can look to a savior and take hold of him knowing that he gets it. He gets your situation because of his humanity. And when I see Jesus in the, in the bottom of this boat, he's approachable because he's a man. But at the same time, Mark shows us his divinity, doesn't he? I love how this comes out. Look, look very carefully. It says in verse 39, what did Jesus do when, when they, they, they wake him up? It says he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. Now this is, this is, a, this is an extraordinarily important moment in the Gospels. And I'll tell you why. Because this is the moment, probably the first moment for the disciples when the penny begins to drop. It's not just the fact that Jesus performed a miracle, but it's the way he did it. It's the fact that he controlled nature by his word. And these are men steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. They know that God's way of ruling his creation is by his word. So this is, this is equivalent to that moment in the comic books when Clark Kent is walking down the road. I won't do it now, but he begins to unbutton his shirt, just one button at a time, and then you see the, the, the S of, the, of his suit revealed, and you know this is Superman. When Jesus begins to speak, and his word controls nature, that was the moment of revelation for these men, that he is more than we thought he was. And you see it in the way that they're afraid. It tells us in verse 40, Jesus says, why are you so afraid? And then in verse 41, it says they were filled with great fear. And there are two different words. The one word for afraid and then the word for fear. And the second word has to do with this divine awe that settles on them when they suddenly realize who Jesus is. It's not just that they're scared of the storm. They were scared of the storm. Now they're terrified that they're in the boat with a divine being. They feel like Isaiah did in the temple when he says, I'm undone. Woe is me. And I think this is, this is extraordinarily important for the Christian. It means that you can feel two things simultaneously in life. You can on the one hand feel the nearness of Jesus because in his humanity he comes down and he identifies with us in the sufferings that we face. But at the same time, we know his power, his sovereignty, and his authority because he's the Lord over all of his creation. If you have only one of those, then you've got an unbalanced faith. If you only understand Jesus and his intimacy, his nearness, his likeness to us, you have a chum, but you don't have someone with all power over your circumstances. If you only know Christ in his sovereignty and his power, but he's somehow distant from you, you don't feel the comfort of his intimacy and his nearness. The Christian gospel is unique in that we have both of those aspects of who God is in Christ to us. Which means, friends, that you and I have a unique power and resource that we can face anything in life and we should not waver. The Christian need not be afraid of anything. Christ has stepped into our mess. He's experienced the terrifying circumstances of life himself. We remember how he sweated blood in the garden. Which means no matter what you're facing, Jesus gets it. 
But we know the end of the story. We know he triumphed over that. We know he triumphed over death. And we know he faced the worst. That he's faced the worst that you could possibly face, that you don't have to face the worst. Which means as a Christian, you should be stable. Stable. The name of your church is Foundation Church. I wouldn't be surprised if that story at the end of Matthew 7 was in Owen's mind and the team's mind as they named the church. We're building this on Christ and his word. Do not be a people of fear. It would discredit Christ. It would discredit you. Be a people of faith. You are built upon Christ. You are built upon his word. And that comes right down to your circumstances. You think, what I'm going through is too difficult. You don't get it. No, I do. I've been through some pretty horrible circumstances myself. And I know the moments when you want to wobble. Jesus is sovereign. He is Lord. I want to encourage you, friends. This is an extraordinary opportunity. The world is getting is going slightly crazy right now. Who's going to stay level? We don't stay level by just belittling the situation and pretending it's nothing. It's not nothing. This is huge. But neither do we fall into fear. So we can confront it for what it is and say, this is a monster. This is terrifying. This is terrible what's happening to the world right now. But we can also say, but Jesus is bigger. So we can be realists at the same time as we express great faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes you powerful. That makes you dynamic. And you guys should be on your knees. I want to be with you in this saying, God, fill this place with people who are coming to know you, with people who are hungry spiritually. Because we're confronted by death now. This is an opportunity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are Lord and that that is not a mere word. It is a reality. You are sovereign over your creation. And you have ordered all things and foreordained all things according to your will and for your glory. And we praise you for your son, Jesus. We praise you that he's stepped into the boat. He's with us in his humanity. He understands the terror of the situations we face, but he is also Lord over his creation. And he speaks and the storm is still. Father, I want to pray for these guys. I want to pray for Foundation Church. I pray that you will stabilize them with faith that is truly built on the foundation of Christ. May they be a credit to you. May they glorify you. I pray in your precious name, Lord. Amen. Amen.